Father, our, our prayer is really the same as always. Lord, we ask you to bless, bless this time together. We thank you for just gathering your people, Lord, for those on the way. We pray that you will get them here safely, Lord. We thank you that Kinsey was able to um, fly safely. We pray that he'll be brought to church safely as well. And we pray for, for Tafik and his open door to preach the word and to share the gospel, Lord, we pray that you would bless that fellowship and that meeting as well, that the people would be encouraged, Lord, watch over your church while he's gone. Uh, we pray you'll bless our fellowship today in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today, the subject for Sunday school is canon. Canon, that's going to be the topic of discussion in and uh, just to begin, we'll, we'll probably start at the beginning with Cannon. Cannon was born on, uh, in April. Uh, no, not that Cannon. It's a different Cannon. The Cannon we're discussing today is what books make up the Bible? Uh, which books should make up the Bible? Which books should make up Scripture and which ones should not? And why are the, the books that we have in particular in our Bibles the books that are there, and are we missing any? Questions like that. How do we know that we have the right books? Uh, because uh, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, have a different number of books in the canon than we have. So how do we know that ours are right and theirs aren't? So really it's a big, it's a big discussion. Um, it's a big, for me it's a very foundational foundational issue because if you think about texts like the famous passage where all scripture is God breathed and it's to make the man profitable it's to make the man ready for every good work right so in order to be that complete man we need to know what the scripture is um, maybe if we're missing books we're not really able to be complete Right, if, we, if we're, we're missing revelation or, or things like that. So uh, we need to know what is Scripture and what is not. I also put down this quote from Deuteronomy 32, 47, just kind of setting, just kind of setting for us the importance of Scripture. This is what Moses said. He said, Take to heart all the words that I have solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. So if the word of God is set forward in this way, if it's what's going to make the man of God complete, if it's to be your very life, um, you need to make sure that you have the scripture. You want to be confident that if scripture is to be your life, that you, that you have it. Um, really, if you think about it, your, your eternity hangs in the balance of whether you actually have the revelation of God or not. Uh, I think most of us, if we grew up in Christian families, we kind of just assumed upon the providence of God that, you know, well, this is the Bible. We never really questioned it. We've never been challenged. So we've just kind of assumed. Um, it's a safe assumption because God is faithful to give his people his word and we can rest in that. But really, kind of what we are studying when you, when you look at the issue of canon, you're really looking at the means by which God used to um, reveal to his people what his word was and what it wasn't. You're really looking at the means. It's, we can trust God to have been faithful to preserve his, his word for us, which he certainly has done. But there's, there's many challenges that will come your way as a Christian. Um, for instance, if you engage in a lot of evangelism, if you have friends who are friends or family even who are Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, um, because they have a different um, amount of books in their Bible, often this this kind of challenge and debate can take place. Uh, you get challenges from the world in general. There's movies. There's you, if you've seen the Da Vinci Code, these kind of things that are kind of trying to. Um, challenge and raise debate about why the certain books are in our Bible. If, if you ever watch the History Channel, there's all these uh, documentaries that, that question, you know, why certain books and why not other books. A lot of challenges um, come around the issue of canon. So I think, I think it's something that's important to at least have a very basic uh, 
foundational understanding of the issues, you know, and just kind of ground yourself in some of the basics at least. So, so let's do that today. Um, canon. What does the word canon mean? Well, canon is just kind of like a transliteration of a Greek term, kanon. Kanon, um, turn to your Bibles to Galatians 5. The word's actually in our New Testament. Kanon. It's actually there a couple times. In both times it's used, it kind of really does convey the, mess, the, the meaning of the word and why we would use it to describe the canon of Scripture. Galatians chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. I'll just read that for us. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So, which word in, that, in those couple of verses do you think is, is our word? The word rule. Um, for all who walk by this rule, this standard, this, um, this, this standard that he's referring to there is really this gospel standard of understanding that circumcision counts for nothing, uncircumcision counts for nothing. What matters is Christ and faith in him. If you walk by this rule, this standard, um, you are in the grace of God. And so that is the meaning, just the simple meaning for canon is the standard or rule. This word gets used in Greek literature as like a measuring rod. It's the rule. It's by what you judge everything else by. If you have a a yardstick, a yardstick is what you're measuring everything by, and that's, that's what we're discussing. What is Scripture? What is the standard? The standard is Scripture. What is Scripture? And we measure everything by that, whether it is Scripture or isn't Scripture. So it's very, it's, it's very useful, it's very necessary to understand the process that the church has gone through to recognize what is Scripture, um, and I use that language intentionally because the church recognizes what is Scripture. The church doesn't make or determine what is Scripture. That's a distinctive between us and Roman Catholicism that they believe their uh, leadership of their church has the authority to determine what is Scripture or make something Scripture where God determines what is His Word. God speaks his word and, and determines what is and what isn't scripture. The church simply recognizes that. So we're kind of looking at um, what the means were by which God gave us to recognize what is scripture or what isn't scripture. Um, most challenges, I think, that you'll come across about canon will be related to New Testament books of the Bible, New Testament canon versus Old Testament canon. There's one major issue concerning the Old Testament canon, that's the Apocrypha books, but um, usually all those movies, the documentaries, these kinds of things are challenging uh, New Testament canon. And usually they're saying that we left some books out. There's all these other Christian writings that we didn't include. Why didn't we include those? We were trying to hide some kind of truth or keep some certain doctrines um, out of the Bible. So we'll, we'll deal with both those issues as, as succinctly as we can. Um, so let's do maybe some Old Testament issues first. So when you think about the Old Testament canon, historically there's, there's really almost no debate about what the Jews consider to be Scripture in, in what we call the Old Testament, which was just their Bible. There wasn't any debate among the Jews. Um, part of it was because, because of the threat um, in Scripture about claiming that you're speaking Scripture or speaking for the Lord. So, for instance, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20. Um, because generally the Old Testament books of the Bible are written, were written by prophets, and to, to claim to be a prophet or to stand in that role is nothing to trifle with. So you have texts like this, Deuteronomy 18.20. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, 
or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So, in the scriptures themselves, there's this warning that if somebody presumptuously speaks in the name of the Lord, that prophet, that claimed prophet is to die. Probably by stoning or some horrible way. So, you can see why one might not be inclined in Israel to so easily claim to be a prophet or claim that they're writing the word of God. The New Testament also ends with a very strict warning, right? You're familiar with the, the way really our Bible, in a sense, ends in Revelation 22:18. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written about in this book. And Revelation has some, some plagues in it. So, the Old Testament, though. The Old Testament also begins even farther uh, forward in De- Deuteronomy chapter 4 by saying, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it. Very similar to the warning in, in Revelation. So that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. So you had these warnings from the very beginning given by Moses. Do not add, do not take away from the word of the Lord. Um, and the really, as, as, the, as the history of Israel goes down the line, there's really not uh, a lot of historical debate or, or question about which books are supposed to be there, which ones aren't. The debate doesn't come up concerning Old Testament canon until much, much later um, in history. And really, this is a debate about the apocryphal what we call the apocryphal books, the apocrypha. Hopefully you've at least heard that that language. Um, These are the books that Roman Catholicism and the Orthodox churches, Greek Orthodox, um, Eastern Orthodox, have added to their Bibles, books that they've now included in their canon. So the apocryphal books are writings that um, were written between Malachi and Matthew. So books that were written after the end of our canon, after Malachi being the last book written, these are books that were written in between Malachi and our New Testament and the coming of Christ. The Greek word apocrypha means hidden or obscure. So... When us Protestants Protestants refer to the Apocrypha, it's kind of like a derogatory term. Like we're saying like these books are kind of like, yeah, those books are kind of shady. Those books are kind of obscure. Um, It's kind of a, so so Rome, Rome doesn't call them Apocrypha. Does anybody know what they refer to these books as? Has anybody ever heard? Deuterocanonical is what like, is the way they'll refer to it. So what does that mean, Deuterocanonical? What is... What does Deuteronomy mean? Five? No, it's a different number. Deutero. Deutero is two, right? Or like second is what they mean by the two. So second law. Deuteronomy is the second given of the law. So what is Deuterocanonical? Second books, right? Second canon. So they kind of soften the blow by by what they call it. They have a second canon. Um... Let me just read for you these books that, that, that Rome has added, just, just so you get familiar with hearing the names, so if they get mentioned, if you come across anything in your studies, you'll at least, maybe it'll, it'll ring a bell. So these are the, these are the 12 books uh, that Rome has added. Tobit, Judith, uh, it, Esther, most people qualify saying it's the additions to Esther, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, which, not Ecclesiastes, right? Ecclesiastic is a different book. Baruch, the letter of Jeremiah, the prayer of Azariah, Susanna, Bell and the dragon, and First and Second Maccabees. Which of those books have you, do you recognize any of those? Like which one? The Maccabees, right? That's the one I, yeah, those, I'm familiar somewhat with those books more than the others. And we'll mention, we'll, we'll read some quotes from Maccabees. There's three more books that the Eastern Orthodox also added, 1st and 2nd, Esdras, and the Prayer of Manasseh. So that's, that's, quite a few, that's quite a few more books. Rome has 12 more, and then Eastern Orthodox have 15. 
So the question really is, why do they have additional books than what we have? So we all agree on the books that, that we share. Why do they have these additional books? Um, these books were definitely added to combat uh, theological um, and doctrinal issues. Uh, they added these at a certain period of time. Does anybody know when Rome officially said these Old Testament books are now part of the canon? Anybody know why they added these books or when? If I tell you when, it might, you might be able to determine why. So the Council of Trent in 1546 Rome, for the first time, people have been aware of the Apocrypha, certainly been aware of it. It's included in the Septuagint a lot of the times. I think maybe all the time it's there. Um, but so throughout history, people have been aware of the, um, the Apocryphal books. But Rome has never said these are actually scripture. These are actually part of the canon until 1546. What was going on in the 1500s that might have caused them to want to add new books to their Bible. 1500s. The, the, the Reformation, that's right. So these, the Council of Trent, um, this Roman Catholic Council, met to directly oppose uh, Luther in the Protestant Reformation and all of the, the teachings that were really becoming prominent out of that. Sola Scriptura, justification by faith alone. They're combating that movement, the Protestant Reformation, and that's why Council of Trent was held, and that's why these books were added. That's kind of, that's kind of interesting, right, that they didn't become, I mean, we're talking about the Old Testament, we're talking about the New Testament, even so, that's still 1,500 years late. Now you're deciding, you know, that, that's pretty interesting, right? So why don't we accept the apocryphal books, um, I just have a couple things listed here. The internal arguments. So these are things found inside the books themselves that would cause us to say, no, that's not the word of God. That shouldn't be part of the scriptures. Um, first of all, the, the kind of the most obvious is these books have his, uh, theological heresy, theological error in them. I put a pretty obvious example here from the book of Tobit. In Tobit 4.11, it says, for alms deliver, alms being like, just like the giving of money. We'll see that in, actually in Acts today. For alms deliver from all sin and from death and will not suffer the soul to go into darkness. And that kind of thing is, is actually repeated in the Tobit so multiple times. That alms deliver from all sin. There's also the, the language of uh, the teaching of prayers for the dead and these kinds of things to... Benefit the people who have already died, prayers for the dead. So theological heresy, um, they're trying to combat the, the teachings of Luther and Calvin that are becoming very prominent at the time. Another interesting point is that the Apocrypha doesn't even claim to be the word of the Lord. It uh, doesn't claim to be the word of God. Uh, real, most of it, I would say, is like uh, just historical um, narrative, historical documentation of of what's going on in between the time of Malachi and the first century. Uh, here's a quote from 1 Maccabees, because even within the documents, even within 1 uh, Maccabees, they understand, they even admit or say, because they're not trying, the Maccabee writings weren't trying to pretend to be scripture. Uh, in 1 Maccabees 4, they even explicitly say in these writings that there are no prophets of God, that the prophets of God have ceased in Israel during this time. So here it says in 1 Maccabees chapter 4, and the Maccabees are written as a historical account of the Maccabean revolt. The, the Maccabean revolt was this revolt of the Jews against the Greek rulers at the time who were, so Alexander the Great had taken over all of this area and they're suppressing the worship of God. And the, and the Jews rebel against and have this great revolt, like this um, historic, almost miraculous victories um, in this family. The Maccabeans like, were a prominent family leading this revolt, and so it's called the Maccabean Revolt. 
Uh, and here's a quote concerning this history from 1 Maccabees. They deliberated what to do about the altar of burnt offering which had been profaned. And they thought it best to tear it down, lest it bring reproach upon them, for the Gentiles had defiled it. So they tore down the altar, and they stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until there should come a prophet to tell them what to do with them. So they recognized there is no prophet. These Gentiles have come into Israel, defiled the temple, we don't know what to do with the stones of the altar, but we don't want to offer sacrifice anymore. Let's stash the stones somewhere, and when a prophet finally comes, they'll tell us what to do with it, right? So he's just saying there's no prophet to, to, to ask. Uh, again, in First Maccabees chapter 9, Thus there was a great distress in Israel, such had not been since the time that the prophets ceased to appear among them. Just another clear... Uh, articulation of the fact that, the, man, there's no prophets. There's no prophets here. External arguments concerning the Apocrypha. The Jews never accepted the Apocrypha as part of their canon. I mean, these are Jewish writings, but they did not treat them as Scripture, as part of their canon. Why does it matter that the Jews never accepted them? Well, Romans chapter 3, verse 2 says that it was to the Jews that were entrusted the oracles of God. God gave his word to the Jews. Uh, the Jews were who kept the word, had the word, um, recognized what was the word of God. Um, the Jews had actually a specific place in the temple where they stored up scripture in scripture only. The Apocrypha was never placed, was never stored up in the temple with uh, the scriptures, with what we call the Old Testament. Um, you have more historical witnesses besides the Apocrypha themselves. You have Josephus, if you're familiar with Josephus, kind of like a quasi-Jewish historian. He, he's a little after. He's born in 37 AD. Um, so he's a first century guy. He says, from Artaxerxes, who is ruler during 400, like right, uh, Malachi's time, from Artaxerxes to our own times... A complete history has been written. So he's talking about all these, especially things like the Maccabees. All these things have been written, but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with our earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. So he ties directly the fact that there's no prophets. There is some history being written, but it's not deemed worthy because there's no prophets. So very explicit Rejection of Josephus by these historical, historical writings. Um, no prophets after Malachi, and because that's true, there's no scripture. Now, the 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 biggest point I got a big check mark here in my notes. I would say most importantly, we don't accept the apocrypha because they were not considered the word of God by Jesus or by the apostles. So as you read through your Bible, as you read through your New Testament, as you read through your Gospels, um, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I would say it's a point for the other side to realize the fact that the apocryphal books, these historical writings, were um, part of the Greek Septuagint. And if you know what the Greek Septuagint is, it was a translation of the Hebrew Scriptures uh, into Greek, which was just the common language of the time, even in... Uh, Judea and all these areas, uh, everybody spoke Greek. Alexander had spread Greek everywhere. This was like their Bible. That, um, certainly the Jews still knew their Hebrew, right, and spoke Aramaic, but everybody knew Greek. This is how you would interact with the Roman soldiers. This is how you, Jesus was talking to Pilate, things like this. Um, so they used uh, this Greek translation. Well, that Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible actually included, which is interesting, but what's, I guess, the counter to that point that, hey, it was in the Septuagint, maybe y'all should include it. The funny thing is, in all the quotations uh, in, in your New Testament from, uh, from New Testament writers, Jesus, the apostles, quoting Old Testament scriptures, never do they quote the Septuagint, I mean, never do they quote the apocryphal writings, right? That's, that's kind of a dead giveaway, um, also, kind of along with that point, 
about the, when we talk about the question of Old Testament canon, never, when you read through the Gospels, do you ever see any debate amongst Jesus and the Jews about, you know, oh, yeah, y'all are quoting a text as the Word of God, but no, that's not the Word of God, you know, that, that's Tobit, that shouldn't be in there. You don't hear any, there's no debate or question in the first century about what is the Word of God. It's a settled matter. Um, so, so that, to me, that's, that's very telling. If Jesus and the apostles didn't quote it as scripture, neither do we. Um, and again, if it took 1500 years for Rome to figure out that they want to include that, that's kind of telling as well that that's a little late. That's kind of suspect motives to add something that late in the game. So any question about old Testament like I said, really, it's, it's very simple. There's not a lot of work actually done around. There's not a lot of work. So um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Michael Kruger. Do you know the name Michael Kruger? Michael Kruger. Or like James White's go-to on issues of canon, right? That's the guy he's saying is the man. Uh, Michael Kruger's done so much work on this issue. Um, let me plug his website. It's called Cannon Fodder, right? Like Cannon Fodder, not that. So, yeah, you get it. Uh, cannon fodder and my favorite thing about Michael Kruger which he's kind of like the foremost scholar I would say um, he's like the pre- he's the president of Reformed Theological Seminary uh, but he does work on canon he writes books on canon he's the canon guy and he has this website called cannon fodder where he does these short uh, little clips um, just on interesting points and interest you know all the debate and issues around canon but he does it so you're talking about the foremost scholar but his little his little helpful videos his little uh what do you call blog things that he writes are just so succinct and so easy to understand he just it's so helpful um i think he's the best michael kruger his books that he's written are a little more scholarly like i struggle like they don't benefit me so much as like his website does because he really brings this stuff to a good level that's helpful um so Maybe I'll just plug Michael Kruger stuff. Cannon Fodder is his website. But, yeah, he, he says, um, and it seems to be the case, that for whatever reason, canon is like the neglected issue um, among scholars. I mean, obviously there's work done, but it's just kind of like this. Man, it's so, such a foundational issue. You would think, man, we need to determine what is Scripture and be able to, to, to know why and articulate to the, that to the people so they're settled. Um, we fight the fights that kind of come up. I guess we're not really fighting that battle, so we're not doing a lot of work to, de- to defend it. But, um, but he says, man, there's just, and especially along the Old Testament, Old Testament maybe because there hasn't really been that much issue. It's really just the apocryphal issue. Other than that, the canon has always historically been settled for the Jews in Old Testament. But New Testament, this is where most of the blogs and most of the challenges and most of the accusations are coming um, against the church having to do with New Testament canon. So uh, let's, let's dive into New Testament canon. No questions about that? So let's begin New Testament canon questions about how the Old Testament ends. Can somebody read for us Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 and 5? This is how the Old Testament ends. Right, the, the, the ending of our Old Testament is with an expectation and a prediction of the coming of the Lord, um, the sending of Elijah the prophet to prepare the way of the Lord. All of this is the expectation. So that doesn't happen from the end of Malachi for 400 years, 400 so, some odd years, right? Malachi is written and there's 400 years where there's no prophets, the word of the Lord isn't uh, being written or no books are being added to the scriptures and you just have this expectation of Elijah the prophet coming uh, to prepare the way of the Lord. So you have this gap, a gap in Revelation, 400 years. Um, In the Old Testament, the prophets spoke and wrote the word of God 
in the new in the New Testament, who's given the role and responsibility of of writing scripture? In the Old Testament, it's the prophets. Who takes that that role in the New Testament? The apostles, right? It was to them that Jesus said in fourteen John fourteen twenty six, the Helper. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So it was to the apostles that they were given this grace, this ability to recall all the things that Jesus had taught to, as you read through the epistles, they're able to interpret the things that Jesus taught. He's, they're, they're given this approval and this authority to... Uh, recall Jesus' ministry, his teachings, and expound upon them. So we transition from prophet to apostle. Now, when you think about what books are the Word of God and what books aren't, um, like say you Google that and you just read through all these different articles you're going to get a bunch of lists of qualifications, I would call it, of, of what is Scripture and what's not. Or, or what qualifications usually of what is Scripture. What are, the, what are the qualifications that it needs to have to be Scripture? And, and, and for the most part, you know, we all have our websites, our authorities, you know, our guys that we, that we listen to. They're all going to get very similar lists. But I think... For you guys, like as far as the eat, to have something to take away from this, the easiest thing to remember about a requirement that would make a, a New Testament book scripture is it has to be apostolic. Like I think if you remember that, all the other qualifications kind of come out of that. So what I mean by a book needing to be apostolic means it needs to be written by an apostle or a companion of an apostle. And an apostle could have affirmed and would have affirmed that book because he knows these guys that uh, he was ministering with, with these other writers, things of that nature. So if you just remember, a book has to be apostolic. It had to either be written by an apostle or affirmed by an apostle. All these other characteristics that are given kind of flow, kind of flow out of that. So to me, that's kind of in my mind the easiest way to think about it. Um, let me read off some of these kind of very agreed upon factors for um, kind of detecting the apostolicity of a book. Number one, it must be apostolic. I kind of said that, but that's where it starts. I think that kind of leads to all the rest of these. Second of all, if a book must be apostolic, that means it must be first century. To me, this is a huge point. Um, In order for it to be written by an apostle or for an apostle to, to give its affirmation and approve that and circulate it to the churches... It had to be first century, right? Because the apostles weren't alive to do any of this work in the second century. So that means the writing to be scripture, to be part of the New Testament canon, must be first century document. If you remember, that's important because that's going to exclude a whole lot of other writings that people are trying to say, hey, why'd y'all leave those out? Um, Thirdly, you must take into consideration what we call the analogy of the faith. What, what do we mean when we use the language, the analogy of the faith? Anybody familiar with that phrase? The analogy of the faith. That, that's the reality that Scripture must, uh, Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture can't contradict Scripture, right? So that just means a, a book has to be orthodox. It can't have heresy in it. It can't contradict, you know, agreed upon Scripture. So if, if a book, if another writing is obviously not in sync theologically. It, it, it's not the word of God because God doesn't contradict himself. See, that's probably a pretty obvious one, right? Um, lastly, it needed to be received widely by the church at large. Um, as these letters, have we, as we've seen, the way that kind of happened, um, it, it would take time for this to happen because, you know, we look at Colossians and Philemon, the way these guys are traveling, you know, um, from city to city, taking these letters, Paul saying, hey, take that letter, also share with the churches, you know, the circulatory letters and things. This would have taken time uh, for this to happen, and it, and it did. Um, but that also, we, it needed to be received widely 
by the churches. So, going back to uh, the first point, for a writing to be apostolic, it needs to be written by an apostle and affirmed by an apostle. Now, the books that are written by an apostle, right, that's easy. You have all Paul the Apostle, all his uh, writings, um, Peter's writings. So, there's five books that are written in the New Testament that aren't written by apostles. Can we think of which ones those would be? That would have had to have been affirmed by an apostle, or they would have to be an associate of an apostle in order for them to have been affirmed by, you know, to the church. Jude. Luke, right? So that's Luke and Acts. James. Hebrews, right? Who got that one? That's, a good, that's an important one. Um, so Mark, who, which apostle would have affirmed Mark's writings? Who did Mark know? Who was Mark? John Mark? Uh, yeah, Paul. Remember Paul had this disagreement with Mark? Um, but they, uh, most of the scholars, like if you read an introduction to the Gospel of Mark, Everybody says it's Peter's gospel. It's Peter's gospel. So in Acts, you see Mark uh, with Peter. Um, in First Peter, Peter's actually, you know, in his, in his closing greetings, or not greetings, what do you call it at the end? Um, whatever you call that. You know, he's, he's referencing Mark there. So Mark was an associate with Peter. Peter would have affirmed Mark. A lot of people think Mark is an account of Peter's gospel, if you want to say it like that. Luke and Acts, who, who's affirming Luke in his writings? I, talk, I, mention, I mentioned this interesting reality of the we section. What's the we section of what book? Has anybody heard that weird statement? It's called the we section in the book of Acts. It's called the we section because the author transitions in his pronouns from saying like things like Paul went here and Peter went there to we went here and we went there. So Luke is including himself in the, in the apostolic missionary journeys with Paul. So Paul was, uh, Luke was an associate with Paul. Paul would have definitely affirmed Luke's writings. Jude, who's affirming Jude's writings or why would Jude have been accepted as an apostolic book? Jude starts off with saying, you know, like Jude, a, a, a Slave of Jesus Christ, the brother of who? You may remember who he's the brother of? James? Right? He's James. James is the brother of who? Jesus, right? Jude was a, bro- a brother of Jesus, a brother of James as well. James becomes like really, as we'll see in the book of Acts, you get to Acts 15, he's like a prominent uh, apostle. He's even given that title, apostle. Uh, in the in the Jewish church there in Jerusalem, so pro- prominent um, leaders there in the church giving affirmation. Now, last but not least, we have the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is the tricky one. Why is Hebrews the tricky one? Because it was anonymous. We have no clue who wrote the book of Hebrews. So if we don't know who wrote it, we don't know. If it was an apostle, we, if we don't know who wrote it, we don't know if he was an associate of an apostle. So what we end up having to do with Hebrews is rest in the providence of God. We have to assume that the book of Hebrews was um, deemed apostolic by the church for the same reason that all the other uh, books were, were deemed apostolic. Um, you also have maybe another... Uh, factor in there I, I call it the factor of uh, his sheep hearing his voice factor right when you read the book of Hebrews to me the book of Hebrews maybe out of all the books in the New Testament just screams Christ I mean that's what the book is about Christ I mean it Hebrews is the gospel for those Hebrews for those Jews who are questioning or maybe going back um, Hebrews rings of truth and so Hebrews interestingly enough uh, a lot of the, 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 the commentators the scholars believe that Hebrews 
was uh, accepted early on as apostolic under the assumption that it was Paul who wrote it. Uh, what, I don't think it was Paul who wrote it. Uh, I can, we can look at why. Um, but, but it's interesting. So the earliest collection of Paul's writings that we have is, is a, papyri, a, a papyri P46. There's 14 letters in P46. You have Paul's writings and then Hebrews is included with Paul's writings. So um, that, that doesn't mean that Hebrews was written by Paul. It just simply means whoever made that collection in whatever, like 160, 175 A.D., they maybe thought that Paul wrote Hebrews, so uh, they, they lumped it in with them. But uh, our earliest record of Paul's writings has the book of Hebrews included with it. It's interesting. Why don't we think... You shook your head no, Casey. Why? Style, is so Style, right? Yeah. Style. Um, Hebrews chapter 2. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2 real quick. Style is, is noticeably different, I agree. A lot of people say, like, maybe it was a, a sermon preached by, by Paul, written by Luke. Um, and Luke, you know, if you're familiar with, like, Luke Acts... Uh, his writing, his, his, his uh, vocabulary and things are, are a much higher level uh, because Luke was what? He's a physician, right? Normally very educated, probably had a, maybe you could say greater intellect or greater learning or education. And uh, he wrote at a higher level. It's almost noticeable, right? You get these fishermen, you read John's gospel, you're like, oh, that Greek's pretty, or not simple, but easier then you read Luke's stuff, it's like, wow, this is a higher level of vocabulary and, and grammar and everything. And Hebrews is the same way, very difficult um, Greek. So, so my hang-up with whether Paul wrote this or not, uh, so like in verse, chapter 2, verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution... How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So, why, does, why is that a hang-up? Or why, why would I think he's saying that this, this, this message was at first declared by the Lord, the Lord Jesus... And then it was attested to us by those who heard. So he's saying, I'm not a, I'm not a uh, original disciple, I guess you could say. I'm a second generation disciple. Um, I receive these things from those who, who were with Jesus. Why, does that, why would that disqualify Paul? How did Paul receive it? Right. I mean, when you read Paul's, exactly, so in Galatians, Paul explicitly says, like, my gospel, what I received is not from man. I received it as a revelation from Jesus himself. So it just wouldn't, to me, it doesn't jive with the way Paul describes. He, he explicitly says, I didn't receive my gospel from man. But here, this guy's saying, my, the teachings that we received is from the apostles who were with Jesus. So, I don't know, some people obviously don't think that necessarily uh, you know, excludes Paul from writing Hebrews. But for me, that's kind of like, man, I can't, I can't hear uh, Paul saying something like that. Um, so that's Hebrews. Kenzie, you missed the discussion of how in the world is Hebrews in our canon? Um, or were you listening on a YouTube or something? I saw some comments on there. No, no, it's Paul. That was Kinsey. Um Okay, so... What else do we have here? I have also um, internal attestations to the apostolic affirmation between authors in the New Testament. So whatever that means, right? Um, Internal attestation. This is like Michael Kruger language. So he's just saying internal meaning inside the letters themselves, uh, there's things in there attesting to them being scripture in inside. So let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. So I'm saying to be apostolic, you know, you have these apostles affirming these writings, affirming each other. 
And there's examples of this in our Bibles. 2 Peter chapter 3. Somebody want to read verses 15 and 16? 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Right. So, did you catch that? He's saying, uh, Peter's saying that uh, Paul has written these letters. In them are some things hard to understand. That's certainly true. Um, definitely agree with that. And he's saying the, unturn- the unlearned, the, the unstable to distort the teachings of Paul, just as they do the other scriptures. So... The writing of Paul is distorted just as the other scriptures, which grammatically he's saying these are scriptures. These are distorted just like the other scriptures. Now, that may not really impress you until you realize the significance of that word, scriptures. Um, the word graphe, the Greek word graphe, right? Uh, the Greek word graphe is in the New Testament 51 times. Every single time that word is used, without exception, it's referring to Old Testament scriptures. As the scriptures say, and they quote Old Testament scriptures. So if you're using the language graphe, if you're using the word scriptures, you're meaning, you're putting it on the level of Old Testament uh, affirmed canonical scripture. And so they twist Paul's, Paul's writings just as they do the rest of the scriptures is how the NASB translate that. So... Um, Graphe is definitely a technical term meaning scripture, meaning canonical writing. Paul or Peter lumps Paul's writings in with that. Who does Paul attest to? Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Who do you you think Paul is going to affirm as writing scripture? Any guesses? There's a real lengthy we section in, in the Bible somewhere that would give you a hint of who Paul might affirm here. 1 Timothy 5.17 Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, there's that word graphe, for the scripture says, the scripture says a couple things. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 25. And the scripture says, the laborer deserves his wages. Where does the scripture say that a laborer, what Old Testament book says a laborer deserves, it's not in the Old Testament, right? Who says... Who's he quoting when he says the scriptures say? Jesus. Or, yeah, like so in what book or what writing is that a quote from? I wouldn't know it either, it's, but it's from Luke. It's, it's found in the Gospel of Luke. So here Paul quotes the, the scriptures say, don't muzzle an ox and the labor's worthy of his wages. He's quoting Deuteronomy and he's quoting Luke's Gospel that's already in circulation saying the scriptures say. Um, and as I said, when you're using that word graphe, there's really, there is no exception to what uh, the reference is. It's, it's to Scripture. He's, Paul is calling Luke's gospel Scripture. It's just that internal attestation to these things. Um, when you see, when you read through your Bible, you'll notice that the apostles, when they write, they're speaking with the authority of God and writing the word of God just like the Old Testament prophets did. You just, 2 Peter 3, 2. I want to recall the words spoken in the past. Okay, so 
Just look at the way that he said, he, he's just prophet, Old Testament prophet, New Testament apostle. It's just kind of like, I want to recall to you the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the commands given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So, these are the things Peter wants you to pay attention to. The holy prophets and the apostles. Uh, just on an equal playing field there. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual... Or, it's interesting. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual... Let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the commands of the Lord. Paul is writing the commands of the Lord. Paul's a Jew. Paul knows you don't say something like that um, unless you certainly are. Um, let me let me close with just a couple last points here, unless there's some real obvious questions or something I'm missing you want to ask about. Um, here's one of these points that Michael Kruger makes that I just think, wow, that is a, that's a good point. I've never thought about that before. Like to me, that kind of ends the debate, uh, concerning, and I think I kind of already made the point, but just to reiterate, these are one of the big things that is pretty definitive point. Uh, when you're talking about New Testament canon, which books, uh, belong in your New Testament? Do we have the right books in the New Testament? Uh, These are apostolic books, right? So, as I said, that means they must be first century documents for the apostles to affirm them or write them. What is the interesting point that Michael Kruger brought up is that the only first century Christian documents that we have are the 26 books of our New Testament. I said 26, I was trying to get... I said 20, in my last Sunday school, I said 26 books and... I can't believe like the kids didn't start throwing crayons at me. Like it's 27 books. I misspoke. Kenzie caught me though. Thank you for that. Uh, so 20, so the only first century Christian documents that we have are the books. Of, there are no other first century Christian documents in the first century. There's really nothing else to even consider. You see how that almost kind of like, so when you get all these challenges like, oh, what about the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary, right? These other really Gnostic, they, they, they get categorized as Gnostic Gospels. If you remember what Gnosticism is, it's, uh, Tafi kind of explained that because it seems like in Colossians they're kind of already addressing Gnostic ideas and stuff like that. Um, the Gnostics were this very dualistic kind of system that, that ends up developing, but you have all these books written by these Gnostic guys, but none of them are first century. These are all like second, third, fourth century documents that for whatever reason people are saying, hey, why'd y'all leave them out of the Bible? Well, I mean, those are kind of John, Johnny come lately. Is that what you call it, Johnny come lately? Um, so as, as far as that point, though, of in order for a, a document to be apostolic, it needs to be written in the first century for the apostles to write it or to attest it or affirm it, right? So these other, all these other writings, they keep saying, why didn't y'all include them? Well, they're not even, they weren't even written. They weren't even around. So to me, I've never heard anybody make that point, but to me, I'm like, wow, like that kind of does, you know, open, closed case there, um, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I guess, I guess I could kind of uh, maybe qualify that if anybody's familiar with first Clement, first Clement is like maybe first century. It's a, it's a very early Christian writing first Clement. Um, that's an interesting writing because what's happening there in first Clement is, is Clement is writing from the church in Rome to the church in Corinth. So it's basically like a follow-up letter because you, you know all the issues in Corinth, right? There are all kinds of issues in Corinth. Paul's having all kinds of trouble with the Corinthians. He's trying to correct them. He writes maybe four letters to them. I mean, it's kind of, I think maybe four letters. He's, he wrote to them in total, two of them we have. Um, this guy's writing another letter to the church in Corinth because the church in Corinth has kicked out their elders that the apostles put in place. And so this, uh, this guy, Clement, is also trying to minister to the church in Rome. So that it's almost first century. Some people say like 95, 100 AD. So it's like borderline kind of throwing my whole argument off. But the interesting thing is that even in first Clement's writing, he distinctively sets himself apart from the apostles. Um, I had like a lengthy quote. I won't read the whole thing. 
Um, but he, he just distinguishes himself multiple times from the apostles. So he's not even um, presenting himself like with some kind of apostolic authority. So I think the argument still, the point still stands. Um, Ignatius's writings, A.D. 110, that's pretty close to first century. And there in Ignatius's writings to the Romans, um, chapter 4, verse 3, he says, I do not order you as Peter and Paul did. They were apostles. He, in the same way, kind of realizes I'm not, he, you know, he's not trying to cl- even claim that kind of authority in his writings. Um, I said that this question of canon, you know, these letters are getting passed around. The church has to affirm or and accept, you know, that, that would be a sign of, of having the apostles affirm these things amongst the churches. The question comes up is like, where's like, where's the, where's the lists at of, hey, these are the books, right? Um, we want a list of early church fathers saying, hey, here's all 27, you know what I mean? Like, that's what we want. We don't really have that very early. Um, the earliest lists we have, uh, Marcion, there's like a fragment of Marcion's, right? Well, Marcion's not a good, Marcion's the earliest, but he's not good. Why isn't Marcion, is anybody familiar with Mar- Marcion's a heretic. He's, everybody says Mar- Marcion's a heretic. Why is he a heretic? Marcion was famous for like taking out the miraculous um, accounts from the Bible, right? Like he didn't believe in the miraculous and he had all kinds of issues. But he's like the earliest one listing out. He says Luke is uh, scripture, and then he has 10 of Paul's letters. He doesn't include the pastoral letters in Marcion's account. But that's 140 A.D. is the first person who says, hey, these are the books. 140, I mean, ah, I went earlier, but that's what we have. There's a fragment. It's another fragment. It's very partial called the Muratorian Fragment. Um, it has most of the New Testament books. That's late 2nd century, so like 175 um, and then finally you have the first complete list is Athanasius. Good old Athanasius always is coming to save the day. And that's not till AD 367 where he's like, here's the 27 books, bam. So um, that's that's pretty late list of books. But when you see, uh, like, so if you study like early, early papyri, like in, in the way they're grouped, you very quickly, if you, if you just did like an overview of all that, you definitely say, oh, yeah, these are the canonical books. Like these are the books they're grouping together. Um, how did they group the books together? Well, the early Christians, it's believed that the early Christians, uh, they, they call it codex. A codex is a book. Like they made books, like just like this. Um, nobody did that. The early Christians, they believe, could have started that. Um, the Jews where this Christianity is coming out of, always use scrolls. It was always the scroll rolled up, you know. The, all, the, all the papyri we have are codexes, books, like where the, the, they fold the papers, right, put them together, and it's a book where you flip just like this. Um, that's like a Christian thing, which is very interesting. They were able to make it small, fold it up, probably for travel, whatever, for whatever. You can't carry, you know, a bunch of scrolls very easily. So maybe that was the reasons that they did that. But when you, when you see all these first century codexes and you see which books they collected very quickly, you're like, oh, yeah, this, they're collecting the New Testament. Like, that's what they kept. That's what they put together. So um, Michael Kruger's great on that point as well um, of just kind of articulating, hey, here's the early collections. Here's the early codexes. And boom, it's the New Testament, the New Testament writings. Um, let me end with just reading a couple of verses because we believe in all this discussion the canon's closed. I would say the canon's closed, right, because the apostles aren't here. The apostles aren't here to write them. They're not here to affirm them. But there's the, Bible, the, the New Testament itself kind of speaks as this revelation having come once for all time. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago, to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. So there's kind of like this finality with the coming of Jesus. You had all the prophets, 
And now you have the Son giving this final revelation. And so he gave his revelation to his, his disciples, his apostles. And that's, there's a finality to that language. Jude chapter 3. I like this one better. Beloved, while I was making every effort to you to write about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. The faith was once for all handed. Again, you have this finality like it's Christ came, the revelation was given, it's once for all. It's not like the Mormons who are still receiving revelation, still making books. It was once for all handed down for the, to the saints. And then you have, of course, again, the end of Revelation, which I don't think it's coincidence that at the, book, the end, the last book of our Bible, God says, don't add, don't take away. Um, so, so that's where we are. Um, again, hopefully you can take some of those just big, at least the big points away of the necessity for a book to be apostolic, which means first century. To me, that's that's pretty decisive. I mean, God just kind of like, God didn't preserve any other first century documents. It's like, this is, interestingly enough, it. So um, we can thank the Lord for, for that. Uh, let's pray, and we'll, we'll move on. Well, Father, we do thank you for your good providence over, over your word, Lord. We thank you. We thank you that we really haven't even had to fight this battle, Lord, that we've been able to be Christians, that we've been able to come with our Bibles, and we haven't even really needed to question these things, Lord. Some of your people have, Lord, we may in the future, Lord, so we thank you for uh, revealing your word in the way that you did, preserving it in the way that you did. We thank you for these apostles who you set apart to do this work, Lord, and we we just um, we give you praise and thanks for the, for the preserving of your word, that we can come to church with Bibles, that we can know that we have the word of God, that we can be assured that everything that you have for us so that we can be made complete is here in our hands. We, we give you thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen.